I want to talk to you tonight about how God heals us of our emotional wounds. Now, we talk sometimes about God, how God heals us of physical problems. We hear reports all the time about how God has healed a person of this disease or of that cancer or that problem. And it's a wonderful thing anytime that God chooses to do that. But we don't hear quite as much about how God heals us of our emotional wounds. And sometimes emotional wounds can be worse than physical wounds. Emotional pain can be even worse than physical pain. And so in this message, that's what I want us to think about, how God heals us of our emotional wounds. Now, it's interesting. I was reading about the five most common emotional wounds from childhood. In other words... These are emotional problems that people develop in their childhood, and yet many times those wounds go right with them into their adult lives, and in fact, they can go with them all the way through life. You might want to jot these down. I found this very, very interesting. The first emotional wound that many people develop in childhood is the fear of abandonment. Maybe a child was four or five or six years of age, and their parents went through a divorce, and so they felt abandoned by one of their parents, and that could be a very traumatizing, or it can be, it is a very traumatizing thing, and so that person could grow up with that feeling of abandonment, and even though maybe in that situation, and and most likely in that situation, they weren't abandoned, but they felt abandoned. And yet if that person does not deal with that feeling as they get older and they become an adult, they may go through their whole lives fearing that their spouse will leave them or that their friend will leave them or that they're going to be abandoned in some way or they're going to be alone. And so the fear of abandonment. Back in May, I was back in Tennessee preaching in the church where I grew up in. And after the evening service, a guy came up to me and he said, do you remember who I am? Well, I've been gone from there since 1981, so, and, and I know, I, did, I remembered the adults, many of the adults I did remember, but the, a lot of the people my age, it took a f- few minutes, and he said, I'm Jimmy Bryant, and he said, we went through school together from kindergarten all the way through fifth grade. I said, Jimmy Bryant, man, of course I remember you. He said, do you want to know what my most vivid memory of you is from those years? I said, yeah, I'd like to know what it was. He said, well... It happened when when we were in kindergarten. He said, in fact, it happened on the first day of kindergarten. He said, we got to class. We we went to kindergarten at a Methodist church, of, of all things. And he said, we got to class on the first day. All of us kids had been dropped off. And you were crying like a baby because your mother had left you. And he said, all morning long, I comforted you and assured you that your mother had not abandoned you. She would be coming back for you. He said, do you remember how hard you were crying that day? I said, no, but I'm glad you do, Jimmy. After, <laughs> after 40 years, that's your memory of me that I cried the first day of kindergarten. So I guess maybe I had a little bit of that going on with me, but it passed. But for some people, it doesn't pass. And they go through all life, the fear of being abandoned and of being alone. And then there's the fear of rejection. That's the second fear that sometimes people develop when they're young and carry that all the way through life. You know, when we were kids and we would play on the playground, maybe a game of football or basketball, and you had two captains, and the captains would pick who was going to be on their team. I want him, and I want him, and I want him, and I want him. There seemed to always be one or two people that didn't get chosen. In other words, the team was full You had either five guys to play basketball or 11 guys to play football, and you had these other guys out there that didn't get chosen. 
And you try to put yourself in their shoes and you think, well, my goodness, they wonder what that felt like to be rejected. And so they would go over on the sidelines and, you know, maybe halfway through the game, they could sub in for somebody else. Now that sounds innocent. It sounds like, well, that's no big deal. And if that just happened once or twice, that probably wouldn't leave any scars or damage to a person. But if that happened every day in the playground and you feel like, man, nobody ever chooses me. Well, you could carry a feeling of rejection all the way through your life, and you just feel like, I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not popular enough. And so the fear of rejection can be a real thing. And in fact, as we get older, when, as we get maybe in our teenage years and even beyond that, I believe it's the fear of rejection sometimes that causes good people to do bad things to do crazy things. In other words, so that I will be accepted by you, so that I will fit in, so that I will be popular, you know, a lot of times people will compromise their convictions or do things that they know is not right, and yet so badly they want to be accepted that they're willing to do virtually anything so that they can fit in and be part of the group. So that's a, that's a real problem. Rejection and abandonment can be two real problems. And then the third thing that happens sometimes in childhood is humiliation. Maybe a teacher humiliates you, maybe a coach humiliates you, or maybe a parent even. Maybe you were a child and you were having some kind of a problem and you overheard your parent telling some other kid's parent about what was wrong with you. And it embarrassed you and it humiliated you and it made you feel really bad. And so you're afraid even as an adult of being humiliated, maybe being, maybe, I think the reason that a lot of people, do you know on a normal Sunday, we have about, we haven't done the count in a lot, but about four or five hundred adults who come to the worship services who don't go to Sunday school or to a connection group. They come to the worship services and they go home. And that's fine. I mean, I always say to people, we'll take you however we can get you. But we encourage you to go into a Sunday school or to a connection group because it's in that small group setting or a smaller group setting that you're going to meet people and develop friendships and develop relationships, and that's what's going to help you stick in a church. Studies have shown that if a person, after joining a church, doesn't make six or seven friendships, relationships, in the first six months, more than likely that person will not be around for the long haul. And yet I think there's a reason that a lot of people don't go to connection groups, and they don't go to Sunday school groups. In fact, if you look at the landscape of churches all across the nations, the really big churches don't even have those things. Now, some of them will have home Bible studies, and some of them do. I'm not saying none of them do, but a lot of the churches today, all they have is the big worship service, and they have thousands of people coming to that. Why? Probably a lot of answers to that question, but one of the reasons, I believe, is because people don't want to be in a small group. They don't want to be singled out. They want to be anonymous. They want to be able to come to a service, sit in the back, or if they sit in the front, they don't want to be called on. And I think sometimes people have a fear in a small group setting, and I don't think this would ever happen around here. I hope it wouldn't. I don't think it would. But people have a fear of going to a class, and the teacher's up there teaching about something, and the teacher looks to the person and singles him or her out in front of the whole class, ask them a question, they don't know the answer to it, and they're humiliated. Or maybe the teacher says, hey, would you lead us in prayer? And to, for you to pray in a Sunday school class wouldn't be intimidating at all. But for that person to even speak in public, 
uh, is makes that person feel very, very uncomfortable. And so I think a lot of people miss out on what would be a tremendous blessing in their lives going to a small group Bible study for fear of being embarrassed or humiliated or singled out or made to feel like they're not as smart as somebody else or as smart as they should be. And again, I hope and pray that would never happen here. I don't think it would. But I think a lot of people think it might. And so they say, we'll take the services, but we don't want that small group stuff. It can put me on the spot. And then another thing I think that happens sometimes in childhood, at least according to this study, that people can carry with them all the way through life, is a feeling of betrayal. Something happens, and uh, they felt betrayed. Or maybe this can even happen in our teenage years or in our adult life. You, You feel like somebody has turned against you. Somebody has betrayed you. Somebody has made a promise to you, and they didn't keep that promise. They broke their trust with you. And now you have a hard time trusting people because here was this person who you trusted with all your heart, and they betrayed you, and now you think, well, since I can't trust him anymore or her or whoever, then you think, well, I can't trust anybody. And so you go through life having a hard time in relationships because you don't trust anybody. You become very suspicious, and you think that, Somebody's out to get you, or somebody's going to do you wrong, or it's just a matter of time until this friend does the same thing that that friend did. They're going to find greener pastures and go on, and you're going to be left all by yourself. And then something else that happens sometimes that people have a hard time getting over is injustice. Injustice. A person will go through an experience that wasn't right, it wasn't fair, someone is mistreated, or something just bad happens, and that, and that person knows this is not right. How I was treated was not right, especially if it happened as a child. And a person gets to thinking, well, why would a person in authority treat me like this? Why would a parent have done this to me, or a teacher have done this to me? And so now they go through life and they think it's people, people are not, they don't treat people right. People don't treat other people right. And then a person can think, well, why would God have allowed somebody to treat me like that? If God's good, if God's all powerful, if God's in control, why would God have allowed this horrible thing to happen in my life? Sometimes I'll hear, not often, but sometimes I'll hear a, a preacher or a speaker sharing his testimony or her testimony. And I'm thinking about one right now. And she tells in her testimony about how when she was a child, she was, she was uh, abused and even molested by her father. And it's just a heartbreaking story. And you, you hear that and you almost think, that can't even be, it, how could something like that even happen? And yet it does happen. And it did happen to her. And how she had to go through a long time dealing with all that and working through that, and being able to forgive him, and being able to trust men, and being able to trust God, and being able to go on with her life, and yet she experienced an injustice in her life that caused her a lot of pain and a lot of heartache. It happened as a child, but it went with her for a long time in her adult life. Now, as I think about those emotional wounds that people go through in life sometimes, I think about a man in the Old Testament who went through all five of those emotional wounds, and that man's name is Joseph. And so, if you would open your Bibles tonight to the book of Genesis, we're going to be in chapter 41 tonight, Genesis chapter 41, and we're going to be thinking about how God healed Joseph of his emotional wounds. 
He went through everything I've just described, maybe not all the examples I gave, but all those categories I just listed. He went through abandonment, rejection, humiliation. He went, certainly he went through injustice, went through things that weren't right, and he was betrayed by those who were very close to him. Now, many of you are familiar with the story of Joseph, but if you're not, let me just give you the Reader's Digest version, the Cliff Notes version of Joseph's life. When he was a teenager, he uh, was born, to, of course, to his parents, and since he had been born a little bit later in their life, and at that time he was the young, their youngest child, Joseph was the favorite. He was the favorite child. And one day his father gave him a beautiful jacket called the Coat of Many Colors. And Joseph wore that coat everywhere he went. Well, his older brothers saw this, Joseph walking around in his jacket, and they didn't have a jacket like that. And they knew that their father had a special affection for Joseph. Even though Jacob loved all those boys, he loved Joseph in a special way because he never thought that he would have this fellow. And so they became very jealous of Joseph, and they decided that they were going to kill him, is what they originally decided to do. And then they said, well, let's don't kill him, uh, because then our conscience would feel bad. But maybe what we could do, we could sell him to some people as a slave. And then we would not be guilty of murder, and not only that, we would have all the money that we would collect for him. And so there was a group of Ishmaelites who was passing through the land, and they sold their brother, and Joseph was taken to Egypt. And so here he has been abandoned by his brothers. He's been betrayed by his brothers. He's been rejected, and all these, he's been humiliated, and all these things, and he ends up in Egypt. Well, after he had been there for a while, he rose, he got a pretty good, we'd just say it this way, oh, Joseph got a pretty good job, and he was doing pretty well. And even though he was away from all of his family, God seemed to be blessing him. But about this time, there was a lady who kind of developed a little crush on Joseph. She was married, and, uh, and yet, day after day, she enticed Joseph, she seduced Joseph, she tried to get Joseph to commit sexual immorality with her, and Joseph continued to refuse to do that. He would not do it. In fact, Joseph said, how could I commit this sin against God? not to mention against me and you and your husband. So he refused to do it. Well, this lady, she began to feel rejected. And she began to feel scorned. And so she got mad. And so she came up with an idea where she could accuse Joseph of assaulting her. And that's what she did. And she... Uh, she started yelling and acting like Joseph had done something bad to her. He hadn't done a thing in the world. Long story short, she accused him of rape. Well, since she was married to a high-ranking official, uh, that's a serious charge if you're, doesn't matter who you're married to, but she was married to a high-ranking official. She turns Joseph in. Joseph ends up being thrown in prison. And for years, we can't tell exactly how long he was in prison. I would say it was a minimum of two years and a maximum of 13 years. Now, if anybody can figure that out from your study of the Bible, I wish you would tell me one day how long he was in prison. It was somewhere between two years and 13 years. So here he's in prison. And while he's there, he meets these two other guys who have been thrown in prison. And he says to them, if you guys get out of here before I do, I wish you would put in a good word for me to Pharaoh, the king of this country, 
Get me out of this place. Well, one of those two in prison ends up being killed, and the other one did get out, and yet when he got out, he forgot to tell Pharaoh that Joseph was really a good guy, that he hadn't committed that crime, and that Joseph could be a blessing to Pharaoh. He forgot about that. Well, as all this is happening, uh, Pharaoh has a dream one day, and he's trying to find somebody to interpret this dream, and yet nobody could explain to him the dream. And then this man, this butler, whom Joseph had met in the prison, said to Pharaoh, hey, I know a man who can interpret that dream because when I was in prison, he interpreted one of my dreams. In fact, now that you mention a dream, it's just dawned on me that when I got out of here, I was supposed to tell you about this guy. I forgot. Now I remembered. You ought to get Joseph and let him come interpret this dream. Pharaoh calls for Joseph. He tells him his dream. Joseph interprets the dream. Pharaoh is amazed with the detail that, Pharaoh, that Joseph is able to give in explanation of that dream. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, You, young man, now have a top cabinet job in my administration. In fact, he says, You will be the prime minister of all of Egypt. Other than me, you have more power than anybody in the whole nation. And so I want you to run this country. And so Joseph goes from being a prisoner in Egypt to being the prime minister, and he's administrating the whole nation. It's an amazing thing. Now, if in, in Genesis chapter 41, I think I've kind of brought us up to speed there. We read that um, as Joseph was getting to know Pharaoh and had explained this dream to him, it says in verse 45, Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah. Zaphnath-Paneah. That's an Egyptian name, but it simply means God speaks and he lives. And so Pharaoh recognized God in Joseph's life, and he gave him a name that represented God. And not only did he give him a name, look at the next sentence. And he gave him as a wife, Asenath, the daughter of, of this priest, and Joseph now has got this wife. And then it says Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh of Egypt. And the reason I said a moment ago that he was either in that prison somewhere between 2 and 13 years, it was when he was 17 years of age that his brothers sold him into slavery. So from the time he went to Egypt until now he's out of prison 13 years. But we don't know exactly how long that he was in there. Nonetheless, he's now out of prison. He's the prime minister. Pharaoh has given him a wife. And in verse number 50, the Bible says, And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom his wife had borne to him. Verse 51. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. And here's what Manasseh means. For God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. Now, we're going to come back to his second son in just a few minutes. But I want us to think just for a moment about his firstborn, Manasseh. Here's Joseph, who has been through all the stuff that I just described, plus more. Some things I didn't even describe. And yet, after this experience has happened, and he becomes the prime minister... And now he's got a wife, and now they have two boys. As he's thinking about what to name their firstborn son, he says to his wife, I would really like to name him Manasseh. And she says to him, no doubt, why would you want to name him Manasseh? And he said, because the name Manasseh 
literally means making forgetful. Making forgetful. And he says to his wife, here's what's happened to me. Even though my brothers at one time threw me into a pit, left me for dead, pulled me out of the pit, sold me, and all those other things that happened, I was falsely accused, languished in prison for a long time. All these emotional things I went through and physical things I went through, Joseph has said, said to his wife, I have come to a place in my own life where God has made me forget all the heartache and all the pain. Now, let's think about that. You say, now, when God made Joseph forget about those things, does that mean that Joseph could no longer remember what had happened? Well, obviously not, because he was talking about what had happened. So he didn't say, I have amnesia. I can't remember any of those problems. No. What he was saying was, even though I can still remember what happened to me, those memories no longer cause me pain. What Joseph was really saying is, those emotional wounds have now healed, and I'm able to talk about it, and I'm able to think about it, and I'm able to remember about those things, and it doesn't hurt anymore. What he was really saying is, the wound has turned into a scar. Now, most all of us have probably cut ourselves through the years or had surgeries or things have happened. We got a wound. But you know what happens in time if that wound is cleaned out and that wound is treated right and then you give that wound enough time, eventually that wound will become a scar. Now, what is a scar? A scar is a wound that is healed. Now, if you have an open wound and you touch that wound, that's going to hurt. But after that wound heals and turns into a scar, you can touch the scar and the scar doesn't hurt. The scar is a reminder to you of an old wound that has healed. And that's what Joseph was saying to his wife. And that's why he named that boy Manasseh. It was, it was an amazing thing in Joseph's life. He was saying all those things that I've been through, and yet God has healed me of that emotional pain. And what I'm saying to you tonight is the same thing can happen to you. Now, you and I, hopefully, will not ever have to go through the things that Joseph went through. And yet I would say there's not a person here tonight who has not, at some point in your life, you'd have to be mighty young here tonight to have not have accumulated some kind of an emotional wound in your life, some kind of a painful experience in your past. And even today you say, man, it's been a long time, but for me, my wound hasn't healed. There's been enough time that has passed. The wound should have become a scar. But the fact is, the wound is still a wound. And some of you here tonight would say, even though it's been a long time, it's not only a wound, it's still an open wound. And sometimes that wound still causes me a great deal of pain. Now, the message God gave me last night when I was home at about 1030, and I knew I had a busy day today, and I thought to myself, now, Lord, you know as well as I do, I'm not going to be able to put the time in on this sermon for tomorrow night that I would like to, and so I'll do the best I can, and about the time I was thinking that, it was like God just gave me this sermon in about 15 seconds, and I went in my study, and I wrote it down, and I called the church and left a message, and they typed you up that outline you have on your program today, because I didn't have time today to do it, because I was speaking at a funeral, and the burial was clear across town. I say that to say, I'm absolutely convinced 
with every fiber of my being that God gave me this sermon last night. And I know God well enough to know, and I know how this whole thing works well enough to know, that God would not have given me this sermon just so I could come out here tonight and hear myself talk. And he would not have given me this sermon just so you could come out here tonight and sit there and listen to me listen or so I could fill up 30-minute block of time in the service. God gave me this sermon tonight so that somebody here who has an emotional wound could begin tonight to experience emotional healing and so that tonight could either be the beginning, the middle part, or maybe when you leave here tonight, it could be a, me, a thing where God, God would say to you, you know what, I'm going to use this sermon to complete your healing. And when you walk out that door tonight, this wound is going to be a scar. Now, the odds are of it happening that quickly are pretty slim. But I'm telling you, it can happen. So, do you believe God heals emotionally? Say amen. How does he do it? Well, first of all, let me give you two things to write down. Then I'm going to give you these things to fill in in your program. Number one, God tends to heal us of our emotional wounds over a process of time, gradually. Now, God can do anything. And you may have come in here tonight with an open wound, and before this service is over, God closes that wound, and you walk out of here completely healed emotionally. And if that happens, I say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But you would be the exception. Most of the time, emotional wounds, whether it's been a betrayal, whether it's been a divorce, whether it's been abuse, whether it's been uh, a friend doing something to you, whether it's been a business situation, whatever, most of the time, that's going to take time. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen the next day. It happens gradually, but it happens. But the second thing I would say about how God heals our emotional wounds, not only does he heal those wounds in a process of time, he heals them dependent upon our doing certain things. He heals those wounds dependent upon our doing certain things. That's why some people, that's why, for example, you could see two different people who go through virtually the same experience in life. And one of them out there somewhere reaches a place of emotional healing and stability. And another person never does. For them, the wound is open for the rest of their life. They never, it never turns into a scar. And you look at that and you think, now that's interesting. How could these two people have gone through virtually the same life experience? One of them is emotionally healthy and healed and whole, and this person over here isn't. How could this have happened? Well, the problem is not on God's end. In that illustration, this second person has failed to do something. And I don't say that by any way of a criticism. I, I would hopefully never criticize anybody. Certainly nobody. I certainly hope, hope I would never criticize anybody who's been hurt. But I'm saying this. The person who has been hurt and years and years and years or maybe decades have gone by and that they're still not, not quite through that. That wound hasn't healed. If you could sit down and talk to this person, there's something that person is failing to understand to accept about God's healing or God's mercy or even God's forgiveness. There's something that this person has failed to do that is causing them to con continue to be wounded. And more than likely, it's one of these things that I'm going to mention tonight. The things that we must do if we're going to experience emotional healing. Now, same thing happens to me just about every time I preach. I, I love preaching and standing up here and talking to you guys so much that that clock just keeps on ticking.
and I never can say as much as I want to. So tonight, if, if, if time were not an issue, I could preach a little sermon about all five of these points. And you're sitting there saying, we believe it, John, with all of our hearts. We know you can. But I'm not going to do that. I want to just give you these five steps that you would be wise to take if you have an emotional wound of some kind that is not yet fully healed. And I'm going to make minimal comments as we go through this because I just want you to hear the force of the statement. Number one, you ready for this? Say amen. If you want to be healed, number one, be aware of God's presence. Be aware of God's presence. It's interesting to me, if you ever sit down to read this narrative of Joseph in the Bible, chapters 37 through 50, how many times it says, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him. And so when we've been hurt by somebody close to us, it is so very helpful to remember, hey, I may have been hurt in this situation, but God is still here. And what I'm going to do is to focus on His presence. Remember this, if God is with you, you are not alone. If Jesus Christ is not only with you, but is living in you. I was home yesterday morning getting ready to preach at the Tuesday Bible lunch. And I was on a totally different subject. But I got to thinking about the fact that as Christians, we have Jesus Christ living in us. And I know we all know that. But unless you sometimes stop and think about what that means, I mean, I'm thankful that God is with me. That's wonderful. But to think that in the person of the Holy Spirit, God is living in me. Think about this. Those of you who have lost a spouse, those of you who live alone, and maybe you don't live alone, but you struggle with loneliness. I think maybe sometimes people who are with people feel more lonely than people who are alone. That's a strange thing. I notice in my own life, if I'm by myself, I seldom feel lonely. Sometimes, if I'm with people, that's a strange dynamic. But sometimes, for example, you can be uh, at, a, at the mall or at a public setting, a public event, and you see all these people, and they, a lot of them seem to know each other. And if you're there by yourself and you don't know any of them, sometimes you feel more lonely than if you were just sitting at home watching television by yourself. It's strange. But sometimes a person can live in a house with four or five people whom they do know well, and yet... In emotionally, they feel detached. They feel very lonely. It's very strange. But whether you live alone or just struggle with being, feeling alone, remember this. If, if you're saved, you are never alone because Jesus Christ is living in your heart. So focus on Him. God is with you. And when you go home tonight, God goes home with you. And when you get in your car tonight, God's getting in your car with you. And when you walk in that house tonight, God's walking in that house with you. And whatever you do the rest of this night, God's going to do it right there with you. And so focus on His presence. You're not, that'll, that'll help you big time. Number two, this is huge. Number two, be confident that there's a purpose in whatever you have been through or whatever you might be going through. There's a purpose in it. We talk a lot about the fact that God is in control, and He is. But this idea here takes it one step further. That, when we say God is in control, that means that nothing ever happens in any of our lives that God hasn't allowed. That doesn't mean God causes bad things to happen, 
But if we ever go through something painful and hard, God allowed it to happen. Because if not, he's not sovereign. But, so that's good to know that. But take it one step further. Not only has God allowed this situation you've been through, God has a purpose in it. See, if you don't, take, if you don't let that one register, you'll just say, well, God's in control. But it, you won't ever get the full effect of what that means. It means that there is a, there is a purpose in the pain that you have been through. And that makes it all worthwhile. Or else you would just think, well, God's in control, but the pain served no real purpose. But I know God's in control. No. There's a purpose for God having allowed that into your life. And so, see, what that ought to do, it ought to send you on a quest where in your own daily life, you say, now, God, why did you allow this into my life? God, what is the purpose of this? It's not wrong to ask that question. In fact, it's right to ask that question. Now, God may not tell you. But it's still okay to say, God, why would you have allowed this situation in my life or in my family's life? Here's even maybe a better question than why. God, how can I grow through this experience? How can I grow in my faith? How can I become a better Christian? How can I become more compassionate? How can I get closer to you? How can I sin less? How can I develop in my character? So God, how, how can this become a good thing? in my life? Or how can you, even if it's not a good thing, how can you bring something good out of it? You see, all those questions are very healthy. And the person who's asking God, God, how can I grow? How can I develop? How can I respond properly? How can I, through this, exhibit class and grace and dignity and unconditional love? How, God, can I extend forgiveness? How can I come through this and not have the least bit of bitterness in my heart? How can I grow like that? See, you ask those questions and those are healthy questions. You'll grow. You, you start getting angry at God and say, well, God, I should understand if you were a good God and how you would, well, that's, that's not healthy. But ask the right question. Number three, and this is so very important, be faithful where you are. Be faithful where you are. So many times when we go through a painful experience, we want to change our circumstances. We want to change the pain. And, and I can understand that. Uh, because I think a lot of times if a person has uh, gone through something and they're having in, incredible pain, they think, well, I've got to do something to salve this pain, to ease this pain. And so they go out and whether it's in a relationship or whether it's in, you know, buying something and that financially they weren't able to buy or doing something or they... they what, what they're doing, they're trying to change their, their circumstances, or maybe they move, or they're trying to change their circumstances. Now, you're in Genesis 41. Let's come back to verse 52, where we read about Joseph's second son. The Bible says, and the name of the second he called Ephraim. That's the boy's name, Ephraim. And I'm sure his wife said, why, why do you want to name our son Ephraim? For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. That's what the name Ephraim means. It means fruitfulness. But notice where he was fruitful. In the land of my affliction. Think about Joseph. This to me is perhaps the most amazing part of Joseph's whole story. Here's a guy in Egypt who is falsely, he is accused of a serious, serious crime. And he's thrown in prison and I'm sure everybody in Egypt who heard about this just thought his name was, I mean, his name was literally 
drug through the mud. And yet, when God gets finished with this story, he's the prime minister of Egypt. And you would have thought maybe when Joseph got out of prison, he would think, man, I got accused of rape. I've, I've been in prison. Maybe he would have even said to Pharaoh, hey, I appreciate you offering me this job, but I really want to go back to Israel where people know me and where nobody's talking behind my back. And is that the same guy that was in prison? Now he's running our country. And I'm sure Joseph, I don't know if that ran through his mind or not. It would probably run through most of ours. And yet Joseph not only became the prime minister, he ends up saying, I want to name son number two, Ephraim, because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. In other words, I think it's so fitting that after all that Joseph went through in Egypt, God let him stay in Egypt. He didn't have to go back to Israel. He didn't have to run out of town. He stayed right there where he was. And I would say to you tonight who have gone through some pain and you're thinking, you know what I need is a change of scenery. I would encourage you very seriously on this. Don't you opt for a change of scenery unless God tells you you need a change of scenery. You stay where you are until and unless God tells you that you need to leave. And let God do for you what he did for Joseph. Let him make you fruitful in the land of your affliction. So be faithful right where you are, at your job, in your home, in your, in your community. You just stay in your church. You just stay right where you are. Don't run. Stay there and watch what God will do if you're faithful. Number four, be free of all bitterness and forgiveness. Be free of all bitterness and forgiveness. This was really Joseph's secret. He refused to be angry at his brothers. In fact, you remember at the end of the book, he said to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. There's an example how a belief in the sovereignty of God kept him from being bitter towards his own brothers, towards those who had done him wrong. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So remember this, anything anybody has done to you, God allowed that. Now, I don't know why, I'll, certainly don't always know why God would allow it, but I'll know this, if you will respond by forgiving them, refusing to be bitter, asking God how you can grow and come through this stronger, you're going to be just fine. And then number five, and lastly, be encouraged. Your situation can change at any moment. Your situation can change. Joseph's did. Here he was in prison thinking the butler had forgotten him and he was probably going to spend the rest of his days there in that Egyptian jail. And yet, just like that, one day that prison door came open and the guard said, Joseph, come, come out of there. Pharaoh wants to have a conversation with you. Your situation can change just like that. Now, in my preaching, I probably tend to, to focus more on being content where we are. Whereas I hear some preachers, their whole emphasis is on getting the people's hopes up because everything could change and get better tomorrow. And I think that's fine. The Bible talks about that too. I may err on the, I may play it so conservatively that I don't do enough of that. Friend, let me say this to you. Both are true. Both are true. We should be content with wherever we are in life. But we should also have our hopes up that at any moment, if he chooses to, God could change our circumstances and we could go, as it were, from the prison in Egypt, the prison that we're in, to being the prime minister of Egypt or, I'm saying that allegorically and metaphorically, you get the point. God could change our circumstances just like that. So in a moment when you go home tonight, you have to try to be saying, God, John said a lot of good things up there tonight 
And I am saying a ton of good things because I told you last night at 10.30, God told me what to say, right? So I'm just passing it on. But if you'll walk out of here tonight saying, God, how would you have me to respond to what I've been through? And then you say to God, God, help me to be content in my present circumstances, at job you don't like, situation. God, help me to be content. And God, help me to remember that t- later tonight, tomorrow morning, next week, three weeks from now, just like that, if you choose to, my circumstances could change. Friend, if you've got all that going for you, you're going to walk out of here tonight with, with faith in your heart. You're going to walk out of here tonight with contentment in your heart. And you're going to walk out of here tonight with anticipation and hope and looking forward to the future. What in the world does God have planned for me? When Joseph was in that jail, I'm sure he thought, my life is over. God was sitting there looking at that and God was thinking, you know, Joseph, I can understand how you're thinking that from where you are now. But what you can't see is that I'm using this situation that you're currently in to prepare you for what I have next. Your life's not over. The fact is, your life is just about to begin, because I'm going to give you a new start. Amen? A tremendous, tremendous message. Father, I thank you tonight that you heal us of our emotional wounds. And I pray for that person here tonight who struggles with feelings of rejection, abandonment, humiliation, betrayal, injustice, lack of trust. I pray tonight that you would use this message to begin, to continue, or to complete their emotional healing. And God, I pray that one day, sooner rather than later, that that emotional wound would become a scar. Something they still are aware of, but it doesn't hurt anymore. They can talk about it. They can think about it. The pain's gone. And now what remains are all the wonderful, tremendous, life-changing things that you have done in our hearts and in our lives as our wounds have turned into scars. With your head bowed and eyes closed tonight, would you just complete that prayer? You know how this sermon fits and applies to you. I don't necessarily know that, but you know how that applies to you. If I were sitting where you're sitting tonight and I heard somebody else preaching this exact same sermon, I would be saying that thing, okay, I can think of how this applies to me. I mean, that's not hard to make that application. Now say this to God. Say, God, show me how to respond appropriately. God, bring me to a place of contentment in my present circumstances. And God, help me to wake up every morning believing that today could be the day that things change. Not because I have forced them or in any way manipulated them, but because you have chosen now to change my circumstances. Father, take this message tonight and may it be one of healing for everyone who's here. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the people said, Amen.